From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. You're listening to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University and its campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandot, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations present and past who were forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties in our efforts toward decolonizing history, and we thank the indigenous individuals and communities who've been living and working on this land from time immemorial. This season of Big Ideas focuses on sustainability and sustainable practices. True sustainability is dependent on equally balanced responses to social, economic, and environmental needs. Today's episode considers sustainable models for preserving history and women's achievements. I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Melissa K. Miller and Lydia Applin. Melissa is a political science professor here at BGSU with a focus on American politics, specifically voting behavior, women in American politics, and public opinion and the media. She is a frequent interviewee of local, regional, national, and international media and was awarded the 2018 Community Engagement Award by BGSU's Faculty Senate for her commitments. She's also a former ICS faculty fellow. Lydia is a senior at BGSU majoring in philosophy. Lydia has received the James W. Child Outstanding Senior Philosophy Major Scholarship Award, and she worked on the project Bridging the Supreme Court and the Public, Media Credibility and the Judicial Legitimacy, presented at the American Political Science Association Conference in October of 2021. In the summer of 2021, Melissa and Lydia, with a team of other students, worked on the research project Trailblazing Women in Ohio Politics. This project was funded by the Center for Undergraduate Research and Scholarship, CURS. Thanks for joining me, Melissa and Lydia. To begin with, could you tell us a bit about this project? What was the scope of Trailblazing Women? So it's a really exciting project, I think, for both Lydia and me and the other undergraduates who worked on it this summer. It's really got two components. The research that Lydia and her colleagues did this summer is going to result in a WBGU-PBS documentary that will air on public television, not just on WBGU, but throughout the state of Ohio. We've also had commitments from states that neighbor Ohio who are interested in it. So there will be public broadcast of our documentary. As well, the project will result in an oral history collection that will be housed in the Center for Archival Collections at BGSU's library. So what it amounts to is a set of interviews with women who've broken electoral barriers in Ohio politics. Each interview is about 90 minutes long. So we'll be pulling material from that for the documentary, but then the interviews in their entirety will form an oral history collection that scholars and students here at BGSU and frankly, around the world, will be able to permanently access as they you know, consider what it takes for women to get involved in politics. Lydia, how did you get involved and what was your role in the project? Dr. Miller reached out to me and a number of other students about doing this research. And I instantly was like, yes, of course. 
So we collected newspaper archives, photographs, old videos from when these trailblazers were originally running for office or pursuing re-election during their um, initial time in politics. So we scoured hundreds and hundreds of newspaper articles, found any significant mention of the trailblazers to try to get an understanding of how they were portrayed in the media and how the people in the public viewed them and, and to also get a scope, an understanding of the scope of their achievements and what they did for their communities. This is clearly a large undertaking as a project because you're talking about more than 50 years of data. So what was your process for conducting the research? You mentioned sort of some of those sources, but how did you approach that process and think about kind of the changing archive in these different decades that you were studying? We had somebody from the library, um, a librarian who was helping us gain newspaper accesses to the different newspapers from around the state. And so we definitely divided up the chunks. We mostly focused on the Trailblazers' first elections, when they were first coming to the public eye and, and saying, I want to run for office and I want to be in this position, because the public's immediate response to their, their running for election was really important, because it directly affected, ultimately, their term and their position. So if a Trailblazer was perceived as or portrayed as being you know, lesser than or more inferior than their male counterparts, that's going to affect you know, how well they do in the election and ultimately how they perform in their position. So we wanted to see how the media component of, of their portrayal affected their time in office and their elections as well. This research could not have been done without these outstanding undergraduates because it involved, as Lydia said, hundreds and hundreds of articles. And, and a lot of these women started their careers in the late 60s, the early 70s. Some started later, 80s, even 90s. Of course, we looked at the major statewide newspapers, Columbus Dispatch, Cleveland Plain Dealer, right? But also the Reynoldsburg Reporter, right? Little tiny papers from Marietta and Marion where these women started out. And so it was a lot of really detailed work. And Jolie, as you mentioned, like the, the context in which they ran, I mean, some of the advertisements for some of these women in the late 1960s, there'd be a picture and then the art, accompanying article would say, so-and-so is a housewife, right? It, it's not how women run today, but it's how these women got their start, broke through, and then each of them achieved incredible heights. Your previous work that we've talked about when you were a fellow was about women running for office in the midterms. I'm curious, how did this project emerge for you? Was it an outgrowth of that earlier work? What was the origins of this project for you? It actually wasn't an outgrowth, but it's very much a companion. It's really in my wheelhouse. I am really interested in the challenges women face in the political arena and particularly on the campaign trail. So what happened was... Our former president, Mary Ellen Maisie, the president of BGSU, met with an alum. And they were talking, and the alum said that there were a couple of women that she knew of that had really broken barriers in electoral politics. One was Joanne Davidson, who Lydia did extensive research on. She became the first and only woman to serve as Speaker of the Ohio House. The other was Betty Montgomery, who was the first woman attorney general of Ohio, as well as the first woman auditor of state. And I believe she also mentioned Nancy Hollister, who was the first woman lieutenant governor of Ohio, 
and the only woman ever to take the oath of office for governor. She finished out the term of George Voinovich when he was sworn into the U.S. Senate. This alum had a conversation with Mary Ellen Maisie, our president at the time. Mary Beth Ray is really the one who said we should do something to mark their accomplishments. So the president's office reached out to me because on campus, I'm sort of known for being interested in women and this sort of thing. And it was at that time that I thought, I think this is worthy of a very public project, not just an academic, scholarly, write journal articles or a book that only academics will read. So I got in touch with WBGU. I got in touch with the Center for Archival Collections. And here we are today, really very far along down the road, have conducted virtually all the research, have conducted the interviews, and will be going into production in the spring of 2022. For you, Lydia, what did this project teach you in terms of about research methods? Like, how did it enhance or was it similar or different to research you've done? But also, what are some of the things you've discovered that were most interesting to you about some of these trailblazing women? My prior experience in research was very much literature-based. And so doing something archival or where you're collecting like mass amounts of, of information and research was definitely new to me. I think I learned much more about kind of how to divide and manage a lot of these large masses of, of papers and such, like I mentioned. Uh, so I think that was really helpful. One of my biggest takeaways from the project was how encouraging it was reading these women's stories. So I'm not going to lie, prior to this past summer when I did that research, I was definitely growing a bit frustrated, I think, with the state of American politics. You just find it to be kind of a discouraging atmosphere in the political science field or even just in you know, the media, how things have been going. So I think it was really encouraging to read about these women and how much they were able to accomplish even 50 years ago when there were way more barriers than there are today. Um, not to say that those barriers don't still exist at all, but it was so difficult for them to overcome and achieve all these things. So I think it was a really encouraging thing for me personally. What were some of the sort of details that stuck out for you in reading about the coverage of some of these women? I think the fact that they were always, you always knew they were a woman that they were talking about. It was never just their last name listed. It was always Mrs. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so. And that wasn't the same for men. So you would have a man's just last name listed as Smith or whatever, but then it would be Miss Davidson or Miss Bradley. So the media always had to, to let the public know that it was a woman they were talking about. They had to have the special differentiation, which ultimately translated to a feeling of like inferiority for them, which was definitely unfair. I think there were also just a lot of anecdotal stories about how they were treated differently, about how, you know, members of their staff or other people on their city councils and such just treated them negatively. Like, because you're a woman, you don't have the same weight, you don't have the same knowledge or experience, and you don't belong here. But in spite of that, the fact that they did achieve so much and they were able to run for further office and, and make it and win elections, it's really, truly amazing. This project celebrates the work of women across the political spectrum, featuring both Democrat and Republican trailblazers. How did you go about deciding who you wanted to include? So it's a challenge, of course, um, because there's so many accomplished women in Ohio politics as in other states. So when I sort of devised this project, I had several key criteria that had to be met in order for me to even be interested in pursuing it. And one was that 
It had to feature both Democratic and Republican women. And that's kind of a hallmark of the kind of research I do, do, um, is that I'm interested in the barriers faced by women from both parties. The other was that I didn't want this to be all about white women, because although white women in Ohio politics, some of their achievements came earlier, there were African-American women who it took them much longer, which I think speaks to the higher barriers there are to women of color in the political world. And so the project also features the first African-American woman lieutenant governor in all 50 states. She was lieutenant governor here in Ohio, which is just amazing. Jeanette Bradley is a Republican, which is also interesting that she was a Republican African-American woman. Uh, It also features uh, Helen Rankin, who was the first woman elected to the Ohio legislature. And um, she actually succeeded her husband, who died while serving in the Ohio House of Representatives. She was appointed to take his place and then served for more years than any other woman. And we also have Ryan McClinn. She was the first African-American woman elected to the Ohio Senate and the first woman mayor of Dayton. There had been prior African-American men who had held the office of mayor in Dayton, but she was the first woman mayor. We also brought, through this intersectional lens that that I wanted to use, I made sure that we talked to Marcy Kaptur as well. She's the longest serving woman in the U.S. House of Representatives. She's from a working class background, and that really makes her story and her entry into politics different from just men and women in general who end up getting involved in politics tend to come from the upper middle class, upper class. And so her story was very interesting. So these were sort of the parameters I had for the project. And I think it makes for a much richer and interesting story in a couple of ways. One is that a lot of the experiences that these women had were shared across racial lines, across class lines, and across party lines. And yet there were also some interesting stories that were unique to each of these women, but unique to those who are African-American, unique to Marcy Kaptur, for instance, who's from the working class. And so I think it will make a really interesting rich portrait of the variety of kinds of experiences women face on the campaign trail and then in the council chambers, in the state legislature, in statewide office, which is is where they ended up and some even in federal office. I'm curious, did the composite portrait that emerges from this research, did it teach you anything new about how you think of about Ohio as a particular locus? for politics. I think one of the most interesting things about Ohio is that in statewide office, it's Republican women rather than Democratic women who have done better. And so in the state legislature, it has been Democratic women. And that's more common nationally. So so basically, if you going into it, I knew from the research that the Democratic Party has had more success across all 50 states electing women into office. In Ohio, what I thought was so interesting is that if you look at statewide office, so here we're talking about lieutenant governor, auditor, attorney general, treasurer, etc. The Republican Party um, has has had more success in electing women to those offices. Neither party has broken through 
the, with the getting a woman elected to the office of governor. There was a woman governor by the name of Nancy Hollister. She was the first woman lieutenant governor. I mentioned her earlier, but she was only governor for 11 days, right, at the end of George Voinovich's term because he took the oath of office for U.S. Senate. And one of the reasons I think the project is interesting is because there are still barriers to break in Ohio. And one of them is electing a woman governor or a woman to the U.S. Senate. There are other states that have done one or both of these things. And Ohio's kind of in the middle uh, on those markers of, okay, how many women have been in our congressional delegation? How many women are in the state legislature or have been elected to statewide office? We're kind of not quite, not exactly, but we're right around the median state. And I think it makes Ohio a very interesting place to study. Lydia, how did working on this project change your own views about women in politics or about kind of the prospect of what it's like to run for office? I think in reading a lot of the Trailblazers stories, you kind of understood that, yes, the Trailblazers were seen as novelties, but they also felt alone in what they were doing. Um, a lot of comments about I'm a woman in a man's world kind of were shared through the newspaper articles. A lot of the women, if they were on a city council or a school board, they they were the only woman vote on that board. Jeanette Bradley, particularly, she was an African-American woman Republican on the Columbus City Council. And she was also the lone Republican for much of her her time there. So she was like double minority. And so I think that as there are more women running for office and being elected, it's probably encouraging because not only are you the only woman, you're breaking barriers with other women as well. So as we have more women in federal office or statewide office or these other more prominent positions, I think it encourages other people to run as well so that that feeling of solitude hopefully kind of wanes and fades away. I think it's really interesting what you're talking about, too, is the importance of these small local elections that we tend to f concentrate so much on the national stuff or the statewide office. But what your examples are showing is the school board or the city council really can be a gateway to greater access, influence and, you know, authority in different ways. It's problematic today that local newspapers if they haven't disappeared entirely, lack so much funding. Often they're weekly, so we don't get a lot of local coverage of these local races. But in our local communities then, as in now, there is a whole lot of policymaking happening. And this is where women and men get their start. And they can really learn the ropes and gain the experience then that allows them to run for higher office. One common lament, in fact, my entire course that I teach to undergraduates, women in American politics, is built around the underrepresentation of women in elective office. And of course, we pay particular attention to the fact that there's never been a woman president. Now, there won't be a woman president unless more women are in the pipeline. So even though there's a willingness, and I think made clear in the outcome of the 2016 presidential election when Hillary Clinton actually did win the popular vote. The public is ready for a woman president, but there have to be way more women in the pipeline. 
such that one, you know, the stars will kind of align as they have to for anyone to become president, right? That they have that right combination of background and experience and the political climate is right. So these local races in the 60s, in the 70s, and today are so important as a really important training ground, really, for the future presidents, the future United States senators, members of Congress, and so forth. One of the things we're interested in this season is this idea of sustainability. And I'm curious as to how that relates to this project. It has two prongs, as you mentioned. There is a documentary kind of to be publicly shared on WBGU and in other public television stations, but you also have the oral history. So can you talk about how you see each of these pieces as helping make these stories accessible, and useful for ongoing research and not just sort of ending with this project. One of the things that I explained to Lydia and her team throughout the summer when they were working on compiling all this information about these trailblazers was that I wanted to have a really terrific website that would go with the project. And so when they found cool pictures, even grainy black and white you know, and and I'd laugh, but I'd like say, oh boy, if you can find one of these women in a hard hat holding a shovel, right, breaking ground, I was really hoping we could find some good action pictures or women sitting in a council room or heading up a committee meeting. So one of the reasons I think we've really designed it to be sustainable, and I think it promises to absolutely be sustainable, is we have the benefit of Women's History Month. In March of every year, there are educators across the state of Ohio, as well as across the country, who, if they had some really user-friendly, accessible, and engaging content to incorporate into that social science class in a high school or into that college classroom, they'd be able to do that. And so by having a documentary that will be publicly available on the WBGU website forever, by having the oral histories that will be archived in the BGSU library forever and accessible through WorldCat, which is a search tool around the world. And then by having a website, which will be the last piece that we complete, but we've already, the pieces are all in place. That's how we will sustain these women's stories. And I'd like to hear from Lydia, if you can say anything about like, what was it like looking for those pictures and then stumbling on a really good one or the advertisements and so forth? There were definitely times where you felt like you had a gold mine, where you'd have a whole bunch of pictures in a row. For some years, you might have dozens of photos of a trailblazer in a particular office or position, and then you might have a couple of years where there's nothing. The same kind of went for newspaper art, like articles as well. Uh, you'd have a couple of years where they were a super hot topic in the news, particularly if it was early in their in their career, and then a couple of years where the newspaper hardly mentioned them. But there were a couple of times where I would find kind of a treasure trove of a bunch of pictures. And it was really interesting seeing them interacting with other people or, you know, giving a speech at some convention or something. I found a video of Jeanette Bradley presenting at, I believe it was the 2004 Republican National Convention. She was high up in their leadership of that convention and she was presenting and it was really interesting to see her interacting with other people and really what role she played nationally as well. So I think with the the sustainability of the project, by having all of those pieces, it preserves the history of these women and what they achieved and their accomplishments, but it also allows for growth going forward because other people who are interested in politics or other women who want to consider running can look at their achievements and say, maybe I can do that too. 
And as Dr. Miller mentioned, by having more women who are interested in politics and who are running, we are more likely to achieve women governors and having a woman as president and these other really big lofty goals. I should mention that the project has benefited also from funding from Ohio Humanities, and that has allowed us to do some of the travel. Much of the research that the students through the Center for Undergraduate Research and Scholarship were able to do this summer was online, but there was some travel involved. So one of our teammates, Rachel Larson, who lived in Dayton, she made some trips to the Ohio History Center, and I joined her there. And that that was made possible, some of that travel by Ohio Humanities. Another thing that I wanted to point out, this is interesting because often there would be that treasure trove of photos. We've got one trailblazer, Helen Rankin, the first African-American woman elected to the Ohio legislature. She's from Cincinnati and represented a Cincinnati district there for many years. And boy, the Cincinnati Inquirer didn't give her much coverage at all. Not at all. And the only pictures that we were able to find, it's like the same two different headshots that they just used over and over. So sometimes it's what you don't find that also tells a story. And so I think that's what's going to be interesting as part of the documentary, but also for scholars who are able to tap into this work we've done to see both what was made visible and what was left invisible. And and the students were really, in some ways, almost kind of like doing detective work too, right? Many of the papers were searchable, but uh, several of the students worked on trailblazers where it was microfilm in the library, right? Kind of old school. But that made then the finding a picture of Ryan McClinn in her cheerleading uniform really amazing and a really amazing find. Um, And I should say, like, they all had really interesting, like, high school experiences. Some were cheerleaders. Some were on the debate team. Some played softball. So just a real variety of really interesting women. As we conclude today's conversation, I'd like to ask both of you to consider the handling of histories such as these. What do you see as some potential opportunities to better preserve and disseminate women's history? Well, I think Women's History Month is a great vehicle, but I also don't want to see women's history relegated to one month out of the year. So I would really like to see the day when really women, even a woman president, is not a novelty. And so I think making women more visible by by the mere fact that they run and they win and they hold office, but also visible through these kinds of projects. There's been so much normalization of women in politics, but not yet enough. And so that's where I think this project can come in. It can honor the women that we're featuring, and we'll be featuring eight women in the documentary I will be doing additional oral histories with other women that will go into the oral history archive. There is a limit, of course, on how many women um, we can include in the documentary, but it also can be ongoing in that way, that we can continue to talk to women who are breaking barriers. I mean, there are cities and towns in this state that still haven't elected a woman mayor. Those barriers have not yet been broken. So there are still barriers to break. And I think it's important to make women visible 12 months out of the year. And this project can help do that. What about for you, Lydia? Any thoughts on opportunities to better preserve and disseminate women's history? 
I think that having these real life stories told like those the like the ones that we're telling with the details about what their high school experiences were like and what it was like growing up for them because that all contributes to how a woman pursues politics as a career or what they exactly want to do not to say that we need to detailly disseminate every woman's life but I also think that learning some of these things about how a woman is treated when they're younger may influence whether or not they want to run for public office. And if we collectively work to improve those conditions, you know, treating women better when they are students or when they're young in their careers, they're more likely to want to pursue these higher offices. One thing that came to mind as Lydia was speaking was that there are books that have been written about Hillary Clinton about Nancy Pelosi. Everybody knows who Sarah Palin is, right? And there's been a lot of scholarship on those women. And and they are so impressive and they are worthy of books and multiple books on their successes. But really to inspire women here on the campus of Bowling Green State University, her in the classroom, or in high school and college classrooms around the state or around the country, Sometimes it's important to look at women who've achieved amazing things, but it's maybe been on that city council. It's been in that state legislature or in statewide office. And so I think it's important that this project is looking and shining a real light on the careers of women who aren't necessarily household names but they ought to be, and their stories can inspire women coming along behind them. I think one of the other things your project reveals is too often the what we focus on is sort of the individual candidate in a moment, right? And so it feels like there's always been only one at a time. And there's a power to sort of thinking of these collectively and realizing that, yes, they may have been the only in this and in that, but in fact, there's a, a whole body of trailblazing women and that there's an there's a cumulative power to that as a as a source of inspiration as well. One of the things that I've been struck by because I've had the great honor of interviewing each of these trailblazers in a face-to-face on-camera setting and what's so interesting to me is I'll be talking to one and they'll say to me after the interview, "Oh, have you talked to so and so yet?" right? And -and so-and-so. And often they're giving me the name of somebody that's in the opposite party. They see themselves as part of a sisterhood Um, that, you know, they they kind of, there's a cohort almost um, sense, I think, that they have. And a lot of them, their careers overlapped in that state legislature before one went on to become, you know, a statewide official and another moved into the U.S. House of Representatives. So there's a real sisterhood, I think, that they feel And I want to give you the last word, Lydia. What advice do you have for students who might be thinking about about whether it's about the subject matter of women in politics or about getting involved in research projects that have different outcomes, right, but that might lead to sort of a sustainable archive or, you know, helping future generations learn from from their research? What advice would you have to students who aren't sure where to begin? I think that's something that a lot of students struggle with, especially as they're they're starting their careers here at BG. Regarding women in politics, Dr. Miller is the resident expert. I mean, she is incredibly hardworking and, and dedicated to the topic, but she's also very, very knowledgeable. Um, it's been really fun working with her thus far. I've been really lucky in my research experiences here. I've had really good research experience with multiple professors. I feel that simply reaching out to a professor who you know well, who you've maybe had a class with that you really enjoyed, 
every single time I've reached out to one, they've been super open about helping me with a research project, whether one of my own or one that they're already working on that I can kind of jump in with. I've been, I, I've truly felt really fortunate about my research opportunities here. And I think that all the professors, again, that I've encountered have been really open to research. So simply find a professor who you feel like you'll get along well with, who you like the research they've already done, and just email them. Just just say openly, hey, I want to do some research. And a lot of, more often than not, they'll be open to it. Thank you so much for joining me today, Melissa and Lydia. Listeners can keep up with ICS happenings by following us on Twitter and Instagram at ICSBGSU and on our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. For more information, visit bgsu.edu forward slash bgideas. Our producers are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza with sound engineering by Alexander Schweitzer and Marco Mendoza. Research assistance was provided by Lauren Degener with editing by Joanna Simpson.